0: on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. 1967 London was swinging like a pendulum. The new epicenter of popular culture unceremoniously wrenched from the United States with the appearance of a certain Merseyside group on the Ed Sullivan show in February 1964. English bands and solo artists were regularly topping the charts on both sides of the Atlantic. The Beatles, who were still largely seen as unstoppable, had given up the hectic touring life and had instead retreated to the safer halls of Abbey Road Studios to express themselves, to produce music which would be listened to rather than drowned out by incessant screaming. A killer double A-sided single in Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever had been recorded in late 1966 and was due for release in early 1967, and a new album was brewing. The Beatles were experimenting with music like never before, influenced by their experimenting with a variety of substances. With a couple of tracks, one quite simple and one monumental already in the can, the Beatles set about crafting the remainder of the new LP. It was Paul who would provide the inspiration for its title and title track, and a concept that would attempt to draw all of the songs together as a neat package.
1: I was coming back from America, um, just on a, a trip, just for fun kind of thing, uh, a holiday, and I was with a friend of mine, our, our road manager called Mal, Mal Evans, Um, he was a big bear of a guy, you know, and a great guy to sort of travel with, he was fun fellow. And I just started getting this idea um, that it would be great for the band to kind of take on like alter egos so that we wouldn't have to record as the Beatles always. It was getting a little bit restrictive, like, you know, oh, here's a Paul vocal, here's a John vocal, here's Ringo's track, here's George's track. So I was trying to break out of
2: that mould, you know. Well, really, it was Paul who'd been on a plane journey with Mal Evans and come up with this idea of Sgt. Pepper, and he was just kind of... To, to me, we were just in the studio to make the next record, and he was going on about this idea of... Um, Know, some fictitious band. Simon had is call after a trip to America and, and the whole West Coast long-named group thing was coming in, you know? When people were no longer the Beatles or the Crickets, they were suddenly mm-hmm. Fred and his incredible, sh- shrinking, grateful aeroplanes, right?
1: At the time, there were lots of those sort of bands that were, you know, Laughing Joe and his medicine band, thank you, Wam bam, mam, kind of group names, you know? Colonel Tucker's Medicinal Brew and Compound. So I just thought, oh, well, you know, if there was a band, what would be a mad name for it?
2: Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This is a take one.
0: Take One of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, recorded in Abbey Road Studio 2 on the 1st of February 1967, with Paul and George contributing two electric guitars and Ringo behind his trusty Ludwig kit. Always in search of different sounds, engineer Jeff Emmerich made the decision to remove the bottom skins from each of Ringo's drums and mic them from underneath, rather than the standard overhead arrangement something frowned upon by the ultra-conservative powers-that-be at EMI. Nine takes of the basic track were recorded this way, with Take Nine marked as best and treated to overdubs of Paul's bass guitar, direct-injected into the recording console rather than recorded through an amplifier. The following day, Paul's blistering vocal was added.
1: Another day singing it.
3: Yeah, I There's just another. heard it then. That was yeah. Nice. yeah. And what you could do with the bits where you can't get it <laughs> you got breath. You can
1: just stop. Just take over, yeah. Yeah, yeah. With the
0: basis of the song now in place, it was shelved for a month, while decisions were made as to how best to complete the track. Another contribution from John would be the next song recorded for the As Yet Untitled album. And, like many of John's songs at this time... It had an unusual genesis.
4: Well, Good Morning, of course, was inspired by a commercial, you know, a breakfast commercial, and uh, I suppose that triggered something in John, which made him write the song. And again, he drew his inspiration from very mundane, ordinary things. Good
5: morning, good morning, the best to you each morning. Sunshine,
2: breakfast, Kellogg's cornflakes, crisp and full of sun. Maureen loves. Kellogg's, best taste, best nourishment, best quality And a card for a boyfriend
5: Sunshine
2: breakfast, Kellogg's cornflakes, best for everyone The best to you, each morning Good morning, morning.
4: Time for tea and meet the wife Meet the wife was a television serial It kind of indicates the suburbanity of his songs And the very Englishness of the whole thing
0: A rare home demo recording of John's Good Morning, Good Morning. John brought the song to Abbey Road Studios on the 8th of February, and with Ringo on drums, Paul on tambourine, and John on electric guitar, eight takes of the backing track were recorded. Good Morning was.
4: Typical of him that it was um, of odd meters, but sounded perfectly natural. I mean, he would have a three-four bar, four-four bar, five-four bar, even without knowing it. One two three, one two, one two three four, one two, one two three four. It was to be a very hard-driving, punchy thing. The the tune itself was quite simple. But they were f- it was full of accents all over the place.
3: Take uh, one. This is called good. good Morning, Good Morning, I believe. I'm not sure about
0: Take 1 and Take 8 of Good Morning, Good Morning, showing the progression of the track through its first session. Take 8 was marked as best for now, but would need to wait another week until it was picked up again. The next song offered by Paul was a metaphor regarding renovating his life by fixing the holes that let in negativity and stifled his creativity. It also refers more literally to painting rooms in a colourful way in the somewhat run-down house on the property he had recently purchased on the Mull of Kintyre in Scotland, which would, of course, become the subject of a worldwide hit by Paul later in his career. The 9th of February saw the Beatles relocate to an alternative studio in London, as Abbey Road was completely booked out for the day. Convening in Studio A at Regent Sound Studio, home of the Rolling Stones' debut album, the Beatles set about recording Paul's next contribution in the company of a very important guest, as Paul explains.
1: Um, the craziest story about it was the evening we were going to have the session. The session was booked and I was getting ready to go out to the session and a guy knocked on my door in London. And at that time I was living on my own, kind of with my bachelor pad in London, you know. so everyone always came around. It was the place to hang out. Um, you could always come to Paul's. It was like... Any time of the night, you could always crash there. Anyway, this guy comes to the door and I said, Yeah, I didn't recognise him. I said, Who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. So I just kind of looked at him and I said, Well, you better come in then. You know, what are you going to do? So I got the kettle on. I said, You want a cup of tea? I said, Well, you know, got to treat him right. You never know, you know, he just... So it was fine and I was chatting away and he seemed like a great bloke and that. So I said, Do you want to come to a session? He says, yeah. I said, you'll have to be very quiet and just sit in a corner, though. I said, I don't want to upset everyone, you know, and I, Lord knows what they're going to think, you know. So I went around. I just sort of said, this, this guy, he, he says he's Jesus, you know. I don't know, but I mean, I'm not taking any chances. Is it OK if he sits in the corner? So he sat there for the session on Fixing the Hole. We just made made the record, said Good night. I've never seen him since.
0: There is some conjecture as to exactly who played what on the basic track, but the four track session tape suggests that Paul played the studio harpsichord and recorded a simultaneous lead vocal, while Ringo played his trusty Ludwig kit and John played bass guitar, possibly leaving George to play the maracas. Six rehearsal takes of the new song were completed before take one proper was attempted.
5: I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind.
0: Take one of Fixing a Hole was deemed best and indeed became the basic track for the final recording. Paul double-tracked his vocal, thus filling the available tracks on the four-track tape. A reduction mix to a new tape was made, onto which George added his distinctive lead guitar licks, leaving some room for backing vocals added by John, Paul and George. Wanting to see if they could improve upon the sounds achieved in this single session, another attempt at the backing track was made take three. Right, take three. Right,
1: so this oh.
3: Did make it with I try
1: Yeah, it. try and make okay. it. <clears throat>
0: Take three of Fixing a Hole, abandoned as quickly as it was recorded. With a solid few hours of work on the song chalked up, the tapes were taken back to Abbey Road to be completed in just under two weeks' time. In the meantime, the Beatles and George Martin moved closer to completing A Day in the Life, with its climactic orchestral overdubs the subject of a previous episode. On the 13th of February, George Harrison made his first songwriting contribution to the new LP, and, as was often the case with George's songs, it was brought to Studio 2 without a title. If you're listening
3: to this song You may think the chords are going wrong But then are just wrote it like that. Is a little up and out of key When you're right Cause I sing it myself
0: The Anthology 2 mix of Takes 3 and 12 of Only a Northern Song. The song was a dig at the contractual arrangements that he and the band had with Northern Songs, their publishing company. John and Paul owned 30% of the company's shares, George and Ringo only 1.6% each. Justifiably, George was annoyed not only because he felt sidelined as a writer by Lennon and McCartney, but also because it didn't really matter what chords he played – most of the money earned from them would end up in somebody else's pockets. Recorded over two sessions on the 13th and 14th of February 1967, the song featured George on Hammond organ, Paul on bass guitar, Ringo on drums, and John on tambourine. After George double-tracked his vocals, the song would be shelved until April, when it would undergo quite a bizarre transformation. When work resumed on Good Morning, Good Morning on the 16th of February, Paul added his bass guitar to the track and John laid down his lead vocal.
3: Still the same
0: Take eight of Good Morning, Good Morning, now featuring John's lead vocal and Paul's rumbling bassline. Like many other songs recorded so far, it would be shelved not only to work out what to do with it next, but also to allow for new songs to be recorded, striking while the creative iron was hot. Like Good Morning, Good Morning, John's next contribution to the new LP would also be drawn from an unexpected source.
2: We walked into an antique shop in Sevenoaks in Kent. And we were looking at what they had there, and John f- pulled out this thing that he found, which was said the benefit of Mr. Kite, and it was virtually all the lyrics to that song.
4: When I saw it, it was hanging up in the hall of his house in in Surrey, and it had everything that the song has on it. It had the Henderson twins and Pablo Fanca's fair, and all those words were written on the poster. And he thought it obviously inspired him to write a song about a f- fairground or a circus
2: that's how you do it, you know, you, you get ideas, you hear people say stuff, or so you hear a phrase that sounds good and you write it down and remember it. So I think he was just advanced for those days in his awareness of putting, everything could be put into a song, you know. Well, so I wrote that as a pure poetic job, you know, to write a song. I was sitting there and I wanted, I had to write because it was time to write, you know. And I had to write it quick because otherwise I wouldn't have been on the album. (laughs) So I had to knock off a few songs. I knocked off it, Day in the Life, or my section of it. And uh, whatever we were talking about, Mr Kite and something like that. I was very paranoid
0: in those days. I could hardly move. From the outset, John knew that he wanted to invoke the sounds, the sights and the smells of the circus straight out of the antique poster in his music room and into the ears of listeners everywhere. Again, it would be down to the studio crew at Abbey Road to bring John's ideas to life, as tape operator
6: Richard Lush recalls. John had a a vision of this thing, you know, it was very Technicolor and, you know, we've got to capture that. George Martin, this is your job. You know, what do we do? And George had a bit of a think about it and we did the basic backing track. We had Ringo George Martin played harmonium and a harmonium for those people that don't know what it is, it's actually a pipe organ and, and you have two pedals that you have to keep going. So you're pedalling this thing like a bicycle with your feet uh, to get any sound, otherwise nothing comes out. So that pushes the bellows. So George Martin was playing that and he got so, I mean, this was like two in the morning or something and he was, I can just see him lying on the floor. He was just so knackered. And, uh, and then we ended up with Mal, the roadie, sort of was lying on the floor, face down, pushing these pedals with his hands. So it was quite interesting. George was sitting at the keyboard and Mal was sort of underneath his legs, just pushing these pedals, you know. God bless him.
3: For the benefit of Mr. Kite. For the benefit of Mr. Kite, this is take one. Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. Try and sing it so you uh, know about the show. Especially in the last verses when you don't know about it. I can't say ten
5: summers, that's just. Try trying to see it as a big get it in, you've got to get it in. Got it in <laughs> got it. all the little breaks that are left for your singing. Mm. The
3: better. Iced water. Okay, man, let's go, lights on. One, two, one, two, three, four. For the benefit of Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Henderson's will all be there, late of Pablo Fanky's fair, what a scene Over men and horses, hoops and garters, lastly through a hogshead of real fire In this way Mr. K will challenge the world The celebrated Mr. K performs his feat on Saturday at Bishop's Gate We'll dance and sing as Mr. Kite flies through the ring Don't be late Mrs. K and H assure the public Their production will be second to none And of course Henry the Horse dances the wall six when Mr. K performs his tricks without a sound. And Mr. H will demonstrate ten summer sets he'll undertake on solid ground. Having been some days in preparation, a splendid time is guaranteed for all. And tonight Mr. Kites is topping the bill.
4: Don't shout it out, there John, just it. Well, all right. It'll, you'll hear it, now I mean, it'll be on the bass. Well, we'll have the, the Mast
3: Alberts it. on by then, won't we? Just it Two, three, four. This time you get it in the middle of the song. <laughs> I had to laugh myself, you know. Wild, wild, Smackle. Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Hendersons will all be there, late of Pablo Fanky's fair, what a scene. Over men and horses, hoops and garters, lastly through a hogshead of real fire. In this way Mr. K will challenge the world. Celebrated Mr. K performs his feat on Saturday at Bishop's Gate The Hendersons will dance and sing as Mr. Kite flies through the ring Don't be late, Mrs. K and H assure the public Their production will be second to none And of course Henry the Horse dances the war When Mr. K performs his tricks without a sound And Mr. H will demonstrate Ten somersets he'll undertake on solid ground Having been some days in preparation A splendid time is guaranteed for all And tonight Mr. Kite is topping the bill. Is
0: Excerpts from the recording session of Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, on the 17th of February, 1967. After pointedly correcting engineer Jeff Emmerich's misannouncement of the title, takes one and two were false starts. We then heard take four, which was much closer to the mark, but not quite the polished performance needed for the basic track. On this evening, the song was taken as far as Take 7, to which the Beatles would add various overdubs, including the icing on the cake, which would put the audience right in the big top. George Martin explains how he used to go about creating such sonic atmospheres. Way back in the 60s, you know,
4: you didn't have any any samplers and you didn't have any gimmicks that you have today. You had just a bit of tape and a machine that went on. So if you wanted to create something new, you had to be a little bit uh, inventive. And I often used to select the sounds of things and quite often from recordings, which of course were copyright, and you couldn't use them because the tunes are there. So I used to destroy the tunes by putting them into little pieces and and shuffling them around a bit, and then putting them back together again. And you would then still get the sound of the original recording, but not the tunes. And that was extremely helpful to create an atmosphere, particularly if you pasted it in in the back of of your panorama of sound. And it was just another tool it was just a, another bit of painting it's a bit like a, a artist before he does the main picture getting a broad brush and doing a backdrop of a, a blue all over whatever it might be and then you put the detail in after it and it was just a normal technique for me it all stemmed i think from the stuff i used to do with peter Sanders, when we used to have to create what i used to call
0: sound pictures It was great fun when john told george martin what he wanted he and engineer Jeff Emmerich raided the vaults of EMI to find the right sounds for the job.
4: He wanted to create a sound picture of what the song was all about, and he actually said to me, "I want to smell the sawdust." But to get the smell of the sawdust, we John and I both sat on different organs, Wurlitzers and. Lowry's and, and Hammond's and with double speed techniques created a kind of whirly atmosphere and the backing, I had visions of Snow White the Seven Wolves who had a, a little pipey organ in their hut. John thought slightly differently, he thought of magic roundabout but it was a tooty kind of sound that we were able to create and together with that we had this weird and wonderful tape consisting of all little sections of real steam organs cut up, joined together in a very haphazard manner Some back to front to give us no tune at all, but just a noise that would convey what we wanted. And this is what it is.
0: The sound effects tape was in fact made up of 19 segments of quarter-inch tape randomly cut into pieces about a foot long and thrown into the air, reassembled as they had landed. The sounds were compiled from recordings of various calliopes, huge steam-driven portable organs which were a feature of circuses in the 19th century. This effect brilliantly captured the feel of the circus, most importantly, without breaking copyright. However, the Beatles were still not finished with this song, and it wouldn't be until late March that it would be revisited. On the 19th of February 1967, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, the first two songs recorded, which had been intended for the new LP, were released as a double A-sided single, a teaser for what was to come in just a few months' time, and designed to keep the fans happy and hungry for more. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll pull up a piano stool on the floor of Abbey Road Studio 2 to listen in as the Beatles reach for even higher ground in their songwriting and recording. Until next time...